Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, believe it or not, we are in session 23 of our look at the book of Revelation. And tonight we're covering chapters... 10 and 11, which are, as you would imagine, some very strange images that come to us by way of other passages in the rest of the Bible. So like a lot of the things that we've talked about tonight, uh, that we've talked about in previous nights, what we'll be discussing tonight, um, a lot of which is predicated on whether, whether or not we as Christians are familiar with the Word of God. But again, before we go into it too deeply, we always want to start uh, with a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we dedicate this time in ourselves into your hands, we ask that you would open to our minds, to our hearts, Lord, the truths in your word, that you might lay bare for us the things that you would have us to learn, and that you would help us to, to have the wisdom not to put uh, the things of ourselves into your word, but to be open only to that which you have inspired John to write down. So help us to, uh, to see you at work in clarity and in truth. Uh, help us to be objective as we look at these pages together. So open our ears to your word, open our hearts to your transforming spirit, and open us to the love of your embrace. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. So, just by way of quick review, I, I always start out by listing the outline that uh, John writes down for us that Jesus actually dictated. And I had a couple of people ask me, Why do you do that every Sunday? Well, the reason, excuse me, every Wednesday night. Well, the reason is. There's a lot in there, and it's a shorthand as to what we've already learned. For instance, in, one, in, in chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus tells the Apostle John to write the things that you have seen, the things that are or what is, and what will take place after these things, after the time of the present. So when we talk about what you have seen, at that point he's talking about the image of the risen Christ Himself, who appears as our great high priest, who's ministering before the throne of God, who's present in the heavenly temple, and He's describing all these wonderful things for us. How He commissioned this book to be written, how He is walking among and yet still holding the churches and the spirits of those churches, the messengers of those churches. Uh, he gives a prophetic description and an explanation of this part of a supernatural reality, and he also offers a special blessing to the disciple that hears and that reads this, this, this book of books. And that's a blessing I hope that we're claiming each and every time we open its pages. So that is the things that John has seen. Jesus also instructs him to write down the things that, that are, what is. And he's talking specifically about the seven churches in Asia Minor and these are epistles that Jesus himself is dictating through the pen of John. So when you take a look at the letters of the Apostle Paul, the letters of, of Hebrews, um, 
the three Johns, Jude, and Revelation, those aren't the, and the three Peters. Those, you have to add seven more to it. Seven individual letters that were epistles written, or rather dictated from Christ. Each epistle gives, he gives a title of himself that has to do with a spiritual reality, and he uses the name of that local church in with that. He gives them the commendations. This is what your ministry is doing right. This is how you're upholding the integrity of the gospel. He also gives some concerns. These are your weaknesses. This is where you're falling short. And he also offers a blessing to the overcomer of those concerns. And he ends with this little phrase that says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, meaning that these letters are not, even though they're addressed to seven local churches, they are not intended only for those churches to read them. They are open letters for each and every one of us to learn something from. Now there's the things that will take place after the things of John's present. The things of the, the, the redemption of all things. And we've seen the throne room of the universe. We've seen the scroll of seven seals. The four horsemen, the cry of the martyrs, the natural upheavals. The sealing of the 144,000 of Israel, the tribulation saints, as well as a brief uh, respite between seal number six and seal number seven, where we hear the prayers of the saints being lifted up. We hear of the seven trumpet judgments that come about after the removal of the seventh seal, of where a third of the agricultural land on the planet has been destroyed. A third of the ocean water has been turned to blood, and a third of the ocean Fearing vessels have been destroyed. A third of the fresh water on the planet is made toxic. A third of the lights from the sky, including the sun itself, has been blotted out. Uh, there's an angelic profession of what I've glibly called woe cubed. Woe, woe, woe to the people of the earth. As if that wasn't enough. In terms of God's judgment, the angel basically cries out, you haven't seen anything yet. And they haven't, because right after that, we see an army of locusts coming out of the abuso, the abyss, uh, for lack of a better term, hell. We've seen an army of horsemen uh, coming out of the Euphrates. And that's just what we've gotten up to thus far. So this book has a lot in it that we're studying, that we're trying to think about. Case in point, there's also this, this structure of the book that we've talked about where there's seven seals, and at the opening of the seventh seal, there are seven trumpet judgments. And in this particular study, we're going to also hear about seven thunders that come about between the, the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And yet there's something very special about this one in the fact that of all of the passages of God's word, God himself orders his servant to leave this out. There's a pause after trumpet six. And then the seventh trumpet sounds forth, and that not only gives us, uh, there's another parathetical statement, but after that seventh trumpet, there's also seven bowls of wrath, or seven vials of wrath that gets poured out on the planet. So anyway, we're here in kind of the, the parenthetical, the parenthesis, the break, whatever you want to call it, between trumpet number six and trumpet number seven. And that brings us to the topic of this evening. Revelation chapter 10, the mighty angel and the small scroll. If you would go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's word to that passage. 20, 
three sessions on one book. And sometimes I feel like I'm still going through it at breakneck speed because there's so much in this book. And yet it's given to us as a source of hope and as a message of urgency to the ministry that we've been all called to. So, starting with verse 1. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like pillars of fire, and he held a little scroll open in his hand. He put, the, he put his right foot on the sea, his left on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices. We'll get on to that in just a second, but let's talk about this angel for just a, sec, uh, a moment, because there's a lot of arguments as to who this person is. Now, the description says that he was wrapped in a cloud, that he had a rainbow, or in more literal terms, a halo, what we call a halo around his head. His legs were described as being like pillars of fire. Feet spanning both the sea and the land, meaning that he has authority and jurisdiction, however you want to phrase it, over everything that is the world. It also tells us that he has a voice like a lion, which is we hear commonly called angels having in Daniel chapter 12. And uh, he also has a face like a sun. So when you read all of that together, it's very easy to think of the description of Jesus that we read in chapter 1. There's a lot that seems very common between the two. Effect, uh, especially because he's there holding an open scroll. But there's a couple of things that are different. First, there is the fact that theologians out there, depending upon what commentary you open, think that every character in the book of Revelation is Jesus except the Antichrist. So be careful. Another is that the term angel is kind of ambiguous. The word angel uh, from the Greek simply means messenger of God. So that can refer to a whole host of different things. Now, when I say angel, more often than not, I'm referring to a created being of God that um, is not mortal the way that we are, but is capable of, of acting under their own volition on behalf of God. Now, when, but I think that this is the clincher of the argument as to who this angel is. There's two words in Koine Greek that mean that we can translate as another in English. Um, alos and heteros. Alos simply means another of the same kind. Like if I'm writing with an ink pen and I want another pen because that one runs, runs out of ink, I would use the word alos. If I wanted, if I were grading papers and I had a black ink pen in my hand and needed to switch it out for a red ink pen, another of a different kind, another one with a subtle difference, in other words, I would use the phrase heteros. Now, when John says that he saw another mighty angel, the word from the Greek there is alos, meaning another of the same kind. So when he says, I saw another angel, he means I saw another angel. Is everybody with me there so far? So this is not just an angel. This is an angel whose description means he has 
a good deal of power and authority to it. But nevertheless, an angel. But then again, that's my interpretation. If you all find something different, or if you believe something differently, there's not really a, a doctrinal issue that's at play here. But let's continue. Verse 4, When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. Now, this means that there is something that was experienced by a gospel writer that, that God himself is declaring that he alone may have experienced, but we are not supposed to find out about it until that day happens. So the questions come up, what did the angel ask in the first place? When the angel lifted his voice unto God, what did he ask that required a response from God? And what was God's response? Now a similar episode happens in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 12. The passage reads, Then I, Daniel, looked, and two others were standing there, one on this bank of the river and one on that. This is the closing of the book that bears his name. And this is where he's asking another high-ranking angel, uh, what means all of these things? And some of the, uh, the lesser angels are asking the angel the same thing. How long until all these wonders, how long until all of the things that you've shown Daniel come to pass? Verse 6, one of them said to the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river, how long until the end of uh, these wondrous things? Then I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river. He raised both his hands towards heaven and swore by him who lives eternally. Similar in scope to the previous passage. That it will be for a time, times, and half a time. Now, the reason I've got that underlined is that we're going to see that very phrase happen again in the book of Revelation. The word times here is interesting because it doesn't mean... We in English, we have a singular and a plural, and that's it. It's either one of something or it's more than one of something. In Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, there is something called a dual in the language, meaning that you have one, you have two, and then you have more than two. So I have a singular person. In, in English, we have the word both, or couple, which has a similar meaning. But when he says here, time, times, and half a time, he's talking one of something, two of something in the case of that times, and then one and then a half of something. So a year plus two years plus a half a year, three and a half years. That's what that literally translates to be. But anyway, that's getting ahead of myself. This is the angel reaching up towards God, swearing by his name, the one who lives forever. Same thing that we see in Revelation chapter 10. And he receives this message from God that he conveys in Daniel's presence. When the power of the holy people is shattered, all these things will come to pass. All these things will be completed. So even though we don't know what John heard, these are some things we can glean from this episode. I mean, you wonder, when I was a little kid, and I was in the fifth grade, I was a recipient of a little red New Testament that I probably wore completely out. 
I had it on my nightstand, and the book of Revelation in particular was something that I was always fascinated by because it was so mysterious and so odd. And probably more than anything else, trying to discern it, trying to understand it just in the black and white sense, is one of the reasons that I got so active in learning the Bible as a whole. Because again, the, the book of Revelation you can think of as having a kind of code to it, but the code is explained and unveiled somewhere else in the Bible. With this exception. What this does say to us though, is this is an evidence that John is experiencing something. Because he's writing as he's seeing and as he's hearing and as he's feeling and as he's touching and as he's having conversations with other people. He talks to the elders. He asks questions of the angels. He hears the voice of God. So this isn't just him having a vision and regurgitating something that he's inspired to write. This is something that he is personally experiencing. So John is a participant in these events. God is basically revealing history to him in advance of its occurrence. But again, he's told by the voice of God that these things are to be sealed up, which we can infer means that the knowledge of whatever was being spoken by the seven thunders is something that could bring harm about if it's either misunderstood or misapplied. And it's such a significant harm that it overshadows all the misapplications and misunderstandings that already exist in Holy Scripture. Think about that for a second. How many denominations can you think of off the top of the bat? How many denominations that are just Baptist denominations can you think of off the bat where we've had disagreements over what Holy Scripture means? There's 81 functioning denominations of Baptists right now in the United States alone, and that's not counting the independents. So if this is potentially harmful enough that it's more harmful than anything that's already caused sharp division within the body of Christ, it must have been pretty potentially uh, inflammatory. So let's keep going. But that's the seven thunders. Seven responses from around the throne of God that God himself says that is not to be revealed to us until that very hour has come to pass. So anyway, we're in verse 5. The angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand unto heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever, same thing that we just read in the book of Daniel, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will, be no lo- there will no longer be a delay. Now, you, you heard me read everything that I'd covered about the outline in Revelation. I didn't take it that we were delaying anything, but apparently there's been a delay. There will no longer be a delay, is crying the, uh, excuse me, But in the days when the seventh angel blow his trumpet, and this is also something that kind of gets you between the eyes as we're reading through here, the seventh trumpet hasn't even sounded yet. The mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. So when we're talking about no more delay, there's at least one that I can think of in this book itself, and that is the justice for the martyrs 
uh, when the, I believe it was the fifth seal was opened up in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When they were crying out, how long, O Lord, until we have vengeance, until you have, till you visit mer- uh, judgment upon those that, uh, that, well, that killed them, that tortured them, that didn't accept them. But there's also the passage that we went over earlier in this study about Daniel's 70 weeks, where he lists all of the things that must, that all of the reasons why the tribulation period are going to come to pass. And he brings up these lists of reasons to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy or draw it to completion as everything is revealed, and to anoint the most holy place. And to the best of my knowledge, the one that's underlined there is the only one that has yet been accomplished even unto this passage in the book of Revelation. So the reasons behind the passages that we're reading all the way through here have yet to be accomplished. The only one that's been, that, that has done is that Christ has atoned for our sins. So there'll be no more delay and all of this will be drawn to a speedy conclusion. Is, what they, is what's basically being said here. The voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. Mark that phrase. The little scroll. <clears throat> he said to me, Take and eat it. That'll get your attention. When is the last time someone ever handed a book to you and said, hey, eat this? Now, some of you, you know, jokingly, if you've ever watched Get Smart back in the days, I think that there there was something along those lines where he would receive written instructions and being a secret agent that was a not-so-secret agent, he'd have to eat it. Uh, But but here, it's it's a much different thing. Uh, He said to me, take and eat it and it will be bitter in your stomach but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. Or in some translations, you'll see the word soured my stomach is the way that we'd probably think of it in in English. Gave me indigestion. The reason that I bring up this word study, little scroll, There are some that say that the scroll is the same scroll that Jesus just opened in the throne room of heaven. But the black and white of what John wrote doesn't go with that. The word that is used here in this passage for little scroll is biblar idion. It's up there on the screen. And it literally means a booklet or a small scroll. Biblion is the word that was used in chapter 5, verse 1, when we're describing the scroll of seven seals. First of all, a scroll that could have seven seals on it is not a small scroll. But that one, uh, Biblion, is, is used basically to describe a legal document rather than something the size of a novel. So these, the words suggest that these are two different documents. 
Not to mention the fact that we see this image in Scripture in another place. Two other places, actually. One in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 15, where the prophet eats the word of God and finds it to be sweet. And another passage that's more directly linked in Ezekiel chapter 3. And I'll read that for you really quickly. Ezekiel is consulting God and God says to him, Son of man, eat what you find here. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. Notice that the people of God are the target audience for what he's talking about. Son of man, he said to me, feed your stomach and fill your belly with this scroll I am giving you. So I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. When I received the word from God, in other words, it was sweet. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel, go to the people of God, and speak my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or a difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Not to the peoples of unintelligible speech or a difficult language whose words you can understand not understand, no doubt if I sent you to them, they would listen to you. Now that's interesting because something similar happens to to, to Jeremiah when he's told to eat the word of God or when he confesses that he has. He, He has to pray out to God for help because the people of Israel are not, the people of God are not accepting the word of God. So here we've got two prophets, now three, if you add John to that, who are being told to to literally assimilate bodily the Word of God in preparation for a people who will reject it. God is saying here to the prophet directly, the people whose language that you wouldn't understand are more likely to receive it than the house of Israel, than the people of God. If I sent you to them, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not want to listen to you because they do not want to listen to me. For the whole house of Israel is hard-hearted, hard-headed, and hard-hearted. Now, what I want to, to, to bring to your attention there in both passages of Scripture, all three passages of Scripture, is that the target audience is resistant to the Word of God. And in Christian circles to this day, the book of Revelation is the most maligned, misunderstood, and not taught books of the Bible. 66 foot books, 40 different authors, this is the one that gets singled out and either mistaught, badly taught, or ignored. Maligned in some cases as well. But anyway, in all three examples, we see that this, take this book and eat it, that's a commission to prophesy. That is God telling the prophet to take the word of God, to devour it, basically to make it a part, a physical part of you. But John's commission here is different. It's different because in the cases of the other two Old Testament prophets, they only mention that that the taste of the Word of God is as sweet as honey. Here John says that when I ate it in my stomach, 
when I meditated on it, when I assimilated it, when it became part of me, it became bitter to me too. So the word of God was given to the prophet. It becomes literally a part of the prophet. And in their hearing, in their gathering of the word, however you want to think about it metaphorically, it was sweet to them. And yet as John is considering it, as he uh, pauses to consider, Salah, as he meditates on it, it becomes bitter in his stomach. There's also, again, this prophetic echo that whoever receives or whoever hears the word of prophecy. Here in the book of Revelation, it's the only book of the Bible that promises a special blessing for those that read it and those that hear it. But we also hear that there's going to be a resentment in all three of these cases. Anyway, and that leads us to Revelation chapter 11. Anything from you all before we go on to the next chapter or anything from our community online? Incidentally, if you go to church here, um, my notes are not only available on our website, but they also are printed out and they're usually found in our communion table or the communion supply table in the back of the sanctuary if you want to pick up a copy that's already been printed. Um, anything, any questions on chapter 10 before we move on? Check, 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 okay. All right, my apologies, we had some sound difficulties. But uh, we'll move on now with chapter 11. The, pro the, the apostle writes, I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it's given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, if you've been paying attention in this study so far, you'll understand that that's a period of three and a half years. So the question is, are we now seeing the beginnings of what we would call the tribulation period from a different perspective? At least that's what a lot of, of the commentarians would suggest, that this is um, John seeing the same thing, but from another side of the arena, so to speak. So he's asked, he's given a reed, a kalamos, which is a, a measuring reed or a rod. It's a naturally occurring reed, a reed plant that is cut down and used as what we would call a yardstick. But John says that it is a reed like a rod, a, a rados, which gives it a different meaning. Uh, a rados is a stick or a wand, um, like a cane, that is used as a baton of royalty, a scepter, in other words. So this isn't just any old measuring stick. This is a measuring stick that implies royal authority behind it. And these, the idea is that with God's authority, or with Christ's authority, He's being commissioned to examine the temple and the people who are worshiping within it uh, before a judgment is to take place. He himself is supposed to weigh it in the balance, so to speak. In, the, in English, we hear the phrase, you were weighed in the balance and found wanting. That's effectively the same thing that's going on here, only with the third yet-to-be-built temple. 
So this excludes the court of the Gentiles, which is the, the far court outside of the temple grounds, which again is supposed to be uh, overridden in the city for a period of three and a half years. Now, again, the question asks, is this taking place at the same time as the opening of the first seal? That's not explicitly stated, but from the, the, the timeline that we are just given, that appears to be the case. Anyway, verse 3, I will grant my two witnesses, and this is the first time that we've come across these characters in this book. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days, dressed in sackcloth, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. I know of some pastors that would love to have this particular spiritual gift. You don't agree with me? Zap! You reject God's word, kaplow. Uh, in fact, John himself, uh, in one episode in, in the gospel according to Luke, I believe it is, asks Christ for something similar to this. When they come across a city that rejects them, uh, he asks Jesus to bring, call down fire upon the city. But anyway, uh, here's something else interesting. They have the authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain. Right now, if you've, if you've studied the Old Testament at all, a certain prophet should come to mind there. The day, uh, it does not rain during the days of the prophecy. They also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. That's something else that should call your attention. And to strike the earth with every plague, whatever they want. So as part of their, um, for lack of a better term, ministry, one of the things that, that they're empowered to do, basically, is send, send their own plagues upon the earth at their own discretion. This is also interesting. The word used in this passage for, for witness is actually martis, where we get the term martyr, a witness, either literally someone that just overhears or oversees something, or in this case, I believe, judicially. Um, analogy it, it refers to a martyr the way that we do think of them as someone who proclaims something and then dies for their beliefs. So these are witnesses to the unfolding of history, the unfolding of redemptive history, I should say, and I don't think that I included that in your notes, so please write that down as kind of an addendum. There's someone who witnessed the unfolding of redemptive history. And because of the fact that we know later in Scripture that they, they perish, uh, they are mortal, they are human beings. They are given power. They're described as being clothed in sackcloth, which is a symbol of mourning, of humility, of sorrow. If something happened to you in the Old Testament period and even in the New Testament period, and caused you to go in a state of mourning, you ripped off whatever clothes you had that were, um, that were on you at that time, and you put on sackcloth, and you cast what on your face? Ashes. And to this day, if we want to show humility before God, or if we want to show a state of mourning, we use ashes 
on Ash Wednesday in some of the cases of, of multiple denominations. Um, varies from church to church if you're Baptist. Some do, some don't. Anyway, moving on. So these are people who are not jolly, who are not happy to give their report, so to speak. They're not dressed so that they are uh, joyful in their judgments. They are in a state of mourning and of sorrow and of humility. John refers to them as the olive trees that were mentioned earlier in the works of the prophet Zechariah, chapter 4. And the image is uh, a couple of lampstands that are being fed by pipes from olive oil from olive trees, meaning that the light has a forever source, that the fuel never runs out. It's like a, a car that has a, an oil well attached to it. I ask, what are these two olive trees on the right hand and on the left of the lampstand? And I questioned uh, God further. What are these, the two streams of the olive trees from which the golden oil is pouring to the golden conduits, the golden pipes? Then he inquired of me, don't you know what these are? No, my Lord, I, implied, I replied. These are the two anointed ones. This is, I think, the, the first passage of Scripture that identifies the ministry of the witnesses, not necessarily who the witnesses are, but identifies the, their ministry before God. These are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So they're given power uh, through the Holy Spirit. The oil being a representative of the Holy Spirit. The lampstand being the light to the world, basically that scatters the darkness. And they stand as a testimony against the enemy. As many places in Scripture call out, you need at least two witnesses to prosecute somebody. They're defended by fire that comes from their mouths. And this has two pieces that are significant for us. First, a literal cleansing fire that destroys doubt, or in this case, destroys the doubter. Fire is also symbolic of God's Word, meaning an all-consuming fire that, that cleanses by consuming the dross and purifying the gold. So anyway... But they are defended by the word of their testimony. Isn't that interesting? They have the ability to shut up the heavens, a miracle that's attributed to Elijah. They have the, uh, the ability to, or the, they are empowered to be able to, I should say, turn water into blood, which is attributed to Moses. And here's the clincher. They are also authorized to use any other kind of plague anytime, anywhere. And they are protected until they come to the end of their ministry. And guess what? So are you. This is part of God's nature. That He will protect you until the end of you accomplishing what it is you're called to do. Anyway, moving on. Verse 7. When they finish their testimony at the conclusion of their ministry, when they finish being a, a, a witness for the prosecution, so to speak, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will rot, lie in the main street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Okay, 
Let's talk about that for a second. Because that's heart-wrenching if you think about it. Where is the temple of God located? Where is the temple located? Jerusalem. So here in God's Word, John is having to pen that the main streets of the great city where these two witnesses died in front of the temple, he is now having to figuratively label Sodom and Egypt. This is also, and this is the button on that argument. This is also where our Lord was crucified. So this Jerusalem by this time was so overrun by iniquity that these two names fit. Some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put in a tomb. Those who live on the earth, the citizens of the earth, will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts like a satanic Christmas to one another because the two prophets had tormented those who live upon the earth. They brought conviction. They explained history through the eyes of the redemptive Christ, through God. They proclaimed His justice, His judgment, His word. And now the people of the word are celebrating the fact that they're dead and that their bodies are lying in display for all to see. They had tormented those who were the citizens of the earth. After three and a half days, the breath of life, or the spirit of life, more literally, I mean, uh, well, pneuma, spirit, as well as air or breath. The breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. I'm thinking the same way that they did after someone else rose from the grave after three days. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. And at that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. We've already seen such a tremendous death toll. Now you can add 7,000 more. The survivors, 7,000 of course being uh, seven, 1,007 is a week of thousands, a completed cycle number. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is finally what it takes to turn some people around. The second woe has passed. We've only covered two woes in all of this time. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. So the beast from the abyss, we can, that's, that's the Greek that's set out there. It literally translates to the beast that ascended from the abyss. So the enemy, Satan himself, attacks these guys. This is the first sighting of the beast in the book of Revelation. And again, he is so filled with hatred that he doesn't send minions after him per se. He is involved in the direct attack. He makes war on them himself. He's part of the charge that attacks and kills these martyrs. And their bodies are set on public display for three and a half days. Three and a half, of course, being reflective of the tribulation period. Time, times, and a half a time. 
Jerusalem is under Gentile control, uh, figurative Sodom, meaning a land of debauchery, and Egypt being a place of slavery for the people of God. And this is Jerusalem we're talking about. And after the death of the witnesses, the people of earth, they celebrate the beast. But yet they get another, one last sign of the power of God on these guys because they're resurrected. They are called out and ascend to heaven. And then terror fills the citizens of the earth. Now there's a lot of conjecture on who these people are. And a lot of it stems from um, it is appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. I, I teeter back and forth on that phrase from Scripture uh, because in, in its context, it's actually a defense against reincarnation. His pointed man wants to die, and you don't come back as a grasshopper. You don't come back as an eagle. You don't come back as another person. It's a pointed man wants to die, and then the judgment. But for what it's work, it has, worth, it has caused a lot of speculation or who these two would be, because there are two characters in canon scripture that have not known death. Enoch, for instance, from the book of Genesis, we hear that he walked with God, meaning that he had an intimate relationship with God, that he was obedient to God, and that he was transposed or he was transposed or he was called away into heaven. Again, he never knew death, and that's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, of all places, in the New Testament. And this person, if he was one of these anointed witnesses, he would have actually been able to witness redemptive history from a very early point in the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Elijah is someone else who never died, so far as we know. He was a prophet of God. He was Again, he was attributed to one of the judgments that we just read about, being the drought, the heavens were shut up in his time. He was transposed into heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2. He appears in the Mount of Transfiguration next to Jesus and Moses. He again never knew death. And in his own life, he would have witnessed the events of redemptive history from the time of the civil war of the two kingdoms to the book of Revelation. But there's this other candidate who we would call Moses. He was the lawgiver and the primary prophet of God to the people that became the kingdom of Israel. He has this other judgment that is common to both himself and uh, one of the witnesses, turning water into blood. He has an intimate relationship with God that in, in the books that he wrote, God actually declares that there wouldn't be another, that there would be another prophet, a singular other prophet, that would eventually have the same kind of close-knit personal relationship mirroring what Moses had. And we later find out that that person was Christ. Unfortunately, he misrepresented God at Meribah when God was trying to set up a prophetic image. And he was told to speak to the rock for it to give forth its water. And instead, uh, he struck it. Christ was only struck once. And now if you want the gift of the Spirit, if you want the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit of God, we have to ask for it. That was kind of the image that would have been set up there prophetically. 
Anyway, his judgment was death, and this is confirmed in, in the book of Jude as well as uh, the book of Deuteronomy. He was actually buried by God himself in an unknown location. Um, but nevertheless, he appears next to Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. And if, if he were part of it, he would have been a witness that would have seen uh, redemptive history all the way back from the beginning of the giving, from the giving of the law, the first covenant, well, the Torah covenant, rather, all the way through the book of Revelation, if that were indeed the case. Now, there's also what, what, this, this peculiar passage that comes to us in the epistle of Jude that mentions uh, Moses' burial. And he actually uses it as kind of an off remark. And I want you to think about this for a second. Jude, uh, verse 9, there's only one chapter in the letter. When Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, Jude is talking about something else entirely. He's talking about uh, the, basically the rebuke of God and that we ourselves are not to be an agent of violence on somebody else. But uh, this is an off comment. This is a throwaway comment in his, in his letter. And yet it tells us that the archangel Michael was having a fight against Lucifer about the body of Moses. Now what in the world does that mean? It's not really explained for us in canon scripture. But nevertheless, it's something that I find interesting in tying back to this question of, is one of the witnesses Moses? Anyway, continuing on with the rest of Revelation 11. Anything, uh, before, anything from you all before we continue in the passage? The question is, whether the image of Moses and Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration has more of a symbolic meaning. Moses representing the saints who had passed away and Elijah representing the saints who are alive during the time of the Arpazzo, the time of the rapture. Um, I don't know to say yes to that. Um, I'm hesitant to say yes to that because I think that that might be the case. That might be that, that there is a certain symbolism that God is orchestrating here because he does a lot of that. Everything in the... It would make a good sermon for somebody. It, it, it may <laughs> preach. It'll preach. But, but the question is on, is that the real reason why these two were chosen? And I can't say definitively one way or another. I will say, though, that I find it interesting that, that the Mount of Transfiguration is not the only place that we see two witnesses surrounding Christ. And I'll get to that in just a second. Uh, but I, I don't think that, uh, that the Mount of Transfiguration was purely symbolic. 
I do think that it was a literal event with a, with, with a very literal meaning behind it. Now, can we take it for granted that uh, those, the, two, the two types of the dead in Christ or the two types who were gathered with Christ will be with Christ? Yeah, we can take it that way. It, it fits that image. Is that the sole reason, though? I don't think it's the sole reason. Anything else? All right, let's continue on with verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices of heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If you've ever seen Handel's Messiah, that's from the Alleluia Chorus. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, or of our God, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Anyway, verse 16, the 24 elders who were seated before God and their thrones fell face down to worship God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken... Notice they didn't say who is to come, because he's already there. You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. That is a very curious phrase. It's a curious phrase because you could argue that God always reigns. He's forever reigned. God's always in control, ultimately. However, the earth here below has not always accepted His dominion. We are in a state of civil war, if you think about it. We're in enemy territory. We're in the place of the rebellion. But here, after the sounding of the second trumpet, which you can interpret as the welcoming trumpet of a royal official, of, of, of the royal himself, the elders are, are raising this tribute of praise where they say, the kingdom has come. The king is here. We give thanks, Lord our God, you have begun to reign, meaning that in the span of this course of time, this is John seeing, and again, the timeline here seems to be kind of back and forth, but at this point, in the pictures that he's setting up, the reign of Christ, the, the political reign of Christ has begun. He has begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to, be, and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, to those who fear your name, both small and great. And he's not talking size, he's talking station in life. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, the word destroy, there's, there's two different Greek words. Time has come to destroy, which means to rip apart. Those who destroy, in that case, the word there, I, just for the sake of time, I didn't write it out as a word study for you, my apologies. But if you look it up on Blue Letter Bible or some such thing, it means to destroy by, destroy by rotting. In other words, corruption. So you could think of it more literally as the time has come to destroy those who have corrupted the earth or have desecrated it. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant, which is a very interesting way that that's phrased. 
It's not the Ark of the Covenant. It's now listed as the Ark of His Covenant. It appeared to the temple. There were flashes, flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, an earthquake, and severe hail. Now, one of the things that I want to kind of clue you in, and I think I talked about this briefly during our, our Exodus study. Um, the, the earthly tabernacle, its furnishings, its tools, and so forth, the temple that came after it, it's all a, a dim reflection of a heavenly reality. The Holy of Holies being, being a, a stylized representation of the actual throne room of God in heaven. One of the things that we can also interpret uh, from the fact that the Ark of the Covenant, this is not the same Ark of the Covenant I don't believe. Now, I could be mistaken, but it was the habit of those in this culture that when a covenant agreement was made and the fine particulars were agreed upon, there would be one side of the covenant, the, less, the greater Lord who would have an original copy, and the lesser Lord would receive another copy. So both parties had a copy of the particulars of the covenant together. So I think that this is God's Ark of the Covenant, a reliquary of His own possession where he has his copy being stored. Now that's just my interpretation. Uh, if you have something different, I know that there are many that, that say that the reason that we cannot find the Ark of the Covenant right now is because it has ascended into the literal third heaven. Uh, my read on that is that the reliquary of the Ark of the Covenant is still somewhere on the earth, but that this is the heavenly reflection or the prototype of what was built on the earth. The truth and the reflection. But that's my interpretation. Anyway, but the temple, his temple, once the earth comes under the political and the spiritual dominion of Christ, it's interesting that the heavenly temple, the throne room of God, the doors are opened and you see the throne. All right, anything before we close out Revelation chapter 11. If not, just to get you started in looking at Revelation chapter 12. 12.1 starts with the phrase, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and with a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, if you try to take that at a very literal level, you'll miss the point. The word sign there that is used in the original Greek, the root word from it, um, sinaimo, I'm not going to pronounce that correctly, my apologies, means to indicate or to signify or to render a truth into signs, to render a truth into imagery. We're talking about a, a parabolic teaching that John's about to experience visually. Now here he, he is saying that what he is witnessing is not the same literal experience that he just had with the, with the thunders. This is him seeing a great sign. God is painting a portrait before him. 
with a lot of prophetic imagery. And if you went with me through our Genesis study, part of this image will become clear to you. A woman who was clothed with the sun, the moon, and a crown of 12 stars. So anyway, this whole chapter is part of a parenthetical group of chapters between the outcome started by the seventh trumpet. So we're about to see basically redemptive history told to us in a parable. For next session, I'd like for you to read chapter 12. And as you're reading, I'd like for you to ask the following questions of yourself. Number one, where is Israel in this picture? Where is the Messiah in this picture? Where is the church in this picture? And I want you to ponder what you've been taught about this previously, if you've been taught at all about this passage of Scripture. I'd like for you to journal down your thoughts as they come to you. Again, that's a gift to yourself as you look back in the study as well as a gift to others. It'll come later on after you. And please discuss this with your group fellowships. Please keep those going. Please stay in communication with your brothers and sisters as you continue to sharpen each other. All right. Any other questions before we go? If not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, please continue to use this time and use us not only to, to glean what is in this book as a matter of trivial thought, but to take encouragement from it, to learn more deeply about where our place is in the unfolding of your word, and to be energized by the knowledge that those who are without you will suffer these judgments and to give us the, the compassion necessary, the courage necessary to show Christ's love, to give Christ's instructions, and to be a, a clear representative of the ministry of reconciliation that you've called us to. Continue to allow us to digest your word so that, um, Lord, though it might take a while to become part of us, Lord, nevertheless, help us to work on it, help us to proclaim it, help us to live it out. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.